You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet speaking. Episode 41 of Season 3, Episode 106 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show podcast. Today is April 27th, 2021. And with it being episode 41, I don't know how many of you are fans of the classic film Ben-Hur, based on the 1880 novel by General Lew Wallace. But Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, is one of the best movies ever made, period. No disputing it. It's a very long movie, 212 minutes. But it was a huge part of my upbringing, as I see it. One of the pivotal films that got played over and over again on VHS when I was growing up. And for those of you who are also fans of the film Ben-Hur, you'll recognize 41 has some significance. 41 is the number designation by which Charlton Heston's character, Ben-Hur, is referred when he is a galley slave serving. He's not referred to by name, he's referred to by number as he's rowing, row, row, row your Roman warship gently across the Mediterranean. To give you an idea, if you're not already familiar with the film, the premise of the story is this. A Judean prince by the name of Judah Ben-Hur, whose boyhood friend Masala comes home to Jerusalem in pomp and splendor as a centurion, as a commander, as a Roman official, Judah Ben-Hur is falsely accused of a crime he did not commit. It's an accident that actually his sister, Tirza, committed or um, is responsible for, I guess you could say. But Masala is bitter against Judah Ben-Hur and wants to make a name for himself. He's angry with Judah because as he comes into the territory, ruthlessly wanting to put down these zealots who are trying to overthrow the Roman Empire, overthrow the Roman governance of the province at least, Judah refuses to work with Masala. He refuses to be an informant. He refuses to betray his countrymen. He may not agree with their stance. He might not be one of them trying to plot violent insurrection against the Roman occupiers. But neither is he prepared to be a turncoat. He can't do it in good conscience, and he won't do it. And he tells Masala this in no uncertain terms. So Masala gets an idea when Tirza accidentally knocks a roof tile or two free. He accuses Judah of having tried to assassinate the current leading Roman military official as he's parading through the streets. 
He accuses him, and he wants word to get out that this is how ruthless he's willing to be even to his friends, even to an old friend like Judah. They were boyhood friends when Masala's father was stationed there many years before. And if people know that Masala's willing to do this even to his friend, Judah, he's willing to do it to anybody. And you'd better watch out for Masala. He means business. Now, Masala knows that Judah did not try to kill this Roman military official, but he doesn't care. The truth is not important. The truth of Judah's innocence or guilt is not important. The truth of their friendship is not important. The truth of Judah's sterling character is not important. No, all that's really important to Masala is power. That's all he cares about. He is the embodiment of the question that Pontius Pilate asks in the Gospels, what is truth? Truth is a means to an end, to Masala. And so Judah is sentenced to what should be his death, a long, slow, painful death as a galley slave. Galley slaves are worked hard, and they're not fed particularly well, and they're kept in conditions which foster disease. And so the outlook is not good. Judah will probably not live for too many months in that condition, but Masala doesn't care. He was going to use his old friend one way or the other, and Judah forced his hand. Didn't want to do it, but you left me no choice, is probably what Masala would say in his internal dialogue. But it's interesting, and it's so well written, and it's so well shot, and so well acted. Judah, along the way to the port, where he's going to be loaded onto a Roman galley, is dying of thirst as he's being marched, death-marched, by the Romans through the desert. And at a certain point, the column of slaves stops off at some kind of a well, some kind of a little watering hole. And a spiteful Roman soldier insists that Judah should not be given any water. And yet there is this robed figure whose face you never see throughout the entire film who gives Judah some water anyways. He gives water anyways, and as this Roman soldier sees it, he's incensed, he's angry, he's furious. I said no water for him. And he's going to whip this robed figure who's stooping down with a gourd or some small cup of sorts to give Judah some water. And then the robed figure stands, and you don't see the robed figure's face, but he turns and he looks at this Roman soldier, and the Roman soldier whose arm was just upraised with a whip freezes in his tracks. And suddenly the look of anger and rage and violence in his eyes gives way to fear, to terror, and then to guilt as he lowers his arm and packs off. And the robed figure, of course, is Jesus, but you're never told that. You just know it. The music changes. Who is this man 
that a Roman soldier who has every reason in the world to feel his hand is free to do what he pleases is afraid. Who is this man that not only teaches with authority, as the people say in the Gospels, but he even gives water to a dying slave on his way to the Roman galley with authority. They carry on from there, and the next thing you know, Judah Ben-Hur is serving on a galley ship. But for some reason, he seems to maintain his strength. And you see on Judah's face a look of grim determination, of hatred. The thing that is keeping him alive is his desire to get vengeance on Masala. Yet he carries himself in an upright way. At one point, when he is called to report to the commanding general of the fleet, he has an opportunity to murder the general. He stands over him while the general sleeps and yet does nothing. And the general wakes and is startled, and he wants to chat with Judah There's a bit of an exchange, and Judah is defiant. He has fear, no more, only hate. A cold, burning hatred for Misala, for the betrayal of an old friend. Now, I don't want to give away any spoilers to those of you who have not seen the movie. You can pause right now and go watch the movie. I would highly recommend it. Whatever it costs on Amazon or wherever you would order it, Buy it. Do yourself and everybody around you a favor and watch it with your loved ones because it is a fantastic film. They don't make movies like Ben-Hur anymore. But for those of you who are indoctrinated and have been inductinated and have been introduced to Ben-Hur, there's a battle, a sea battle, in which the general's ship is damaged badly, and it's going down. But because the general happened to like Judah Ben-Hur, he gives directions that when all the other slaves are to be shackled so that they don't get any thoughts of mutiny during the battle, overthrowing their Roman overlords, their slave masters, and going over to the other side, defecting. When everyone else is shackled, Judah is left unshackled as a sign of favor from the general, as a sign that should the ship look like it's going to go down, he can save himself. He can flee. He won't drown. He won't go down with the ship. Judah uses his freedom when the ship is on its way down to the depths of the sea to free his fellow slaves, as many as possible. There's a bit of old-time movie-making special effects where men are losing limbs because of the ramming of some other ship into that ship and timbers falling and breaking their arms off or their legs off and blood in the water and all that, screaming and yelling and all that. Judah saves as many as he can. And then, lo and behold, it turns out that he and the general are on a piece of debris floating in the ocean in the midst of this battle, and Judah saves an unconscious general from drowning, pulls him onto this piece of 
drifting debris. And when the general wakes up, unconscious though he was, he wants to kill himself, to commit suicide. He thinks that they have lost the battle with these pirates. And he wants to kill himself so that he doesn't have to face the dishonor going back to Rome, having been defeated. But Judah won't let him kill himself. He says some epic line, Charlton Heston, who does a phenomenal job as Judah Ben-Hur, one of my favorite actors because of his performance in Ben-Hur and also the Ten Commandments. Heston won't let him kill himself. And he tells him that he lives to serve this ship, which is a funny turnabout from something that the general has told the galley slaves earlier in the film. Now the roles are reversed. The battle ends, and they are picked up, Judah and the general, by another one of the ships in the Roman fleet. And then comes the news that it wasn't the defeat. Even though the general's ship was sunk, the fleet was victorious. And now the tides have turned again. It looked like defeat, but because they held on just a little longer, because Judah refused to allow the general to commit suicide, he is able to go home to Rome in triumph, in victory. The thanks that Judah gets is that he's adopted by the general as his own son. And so now Judah, who was a galley slave, falsely accused by his childhood friend, is now the adopted son of one of the leading men in Rome. And as such, he has prestige, he has wealth at his disposal, he has power and influence, and he takes up chariot racing. And I won't give you the play-by-play on the rest of the film, go watch it for yourself, but it seems like, for most of the film, this is a story of revenge. It's a revenge fantasy, but you have to watch to the end to find out that this is actually a redemption story. Masala does not make it out of the movie, out of the story, alive. His bitterness, his hatred, his ambition, his duplicity catches up with him. And he does not last. He does not endure. Judah, meanwhile, is consumed with bitterness, and it isn't but for the love of a good woman that he is eventually able to find his mother and his sister, be reunited with them. But lo and behold, the knife is turned at that point where he thought they were dead, and then he finds out that Masala, in his cruelty, had sent them to prison, where they languished for years and years in darkness, just the two of them, until they were forgotten about. And by the time they're pulled out, however it happens, it turns out they've contracted leprosy. Somehow they must have caught it from some other prisoner, but now they have it. And as lepers, they are sent off to a leper colony. And the love interest in Judah's life knows about this. Her father was a faithful servant of the house of Ben-Hur, and she keeps on going to this leper colony 
and bringing food and visiting with Judah's mother and his sister. But they beg her not to tell Judah if he's alive, now that he's alive, now that we know he made it, he survived against all odds, please don't tell him where we are. It would destroy us. We can't bear to think of him seeing us this way. They would rather that Judah think they were dead. And so Judah doesn't know until by happenstance he finds out. He finds out and he's even more angry. And this is before Masala dies in the chariot race. He's trampled underfoot by the horses, which is symbolic of the fact that his ambition ends up finding him out, getting the better of him. His malice, his cruelty comes around full circle. Judah wants to kill Masala. He wants to destroy him. But first, before he kills him, he wants to destroy his reputation. He wants for all of Rome, all of Judea to see him being defeated in the chariot race by this man that he sentenced on false charges to death as a galley slave. It turns out that at the end of the film, though they are lepers, Tirza and Miriam, Judah's mother and sister, have a very dear friend in Esther, the love interest, daughter of Simonides. And Esther has heard this man Jesus preaching and teaching. She's gone out to hear him. And she is a wonderful, beautiful, sweet woman who tries to plead with Judah to let go of his bitterness and his hate. She's been listening to this Jesus character. He won't listen. He's consumed with his bitterness and hate. It's all that's been keeping him going for all these years. It's all he has. But by the end of the film, it just so happens that Christ being crucified, Esther takes Miriam and Tirza, lepers now. They're going to go and see this Jesus. And yet, because Jesus has been crucified, his blood is running down the cross. As the rains come, a storm comes. And his blood is mixing with water and washing into a stream. And there, as it's flowing, symbolically, metaphorically, they end up being touched by it. And because they believe in Jesus and they were seeking him out, even though they couldn't find him on their own, the blood of Jesus finds them. And they're healed. And they're made whole again. It's a funny thing because the main story is not Jesus, and yet it is. The main story in Ben-Hur is the ability and the power, the grace of God to restore bitter people in their relationship with God, their relationship with one another. I love that this story makes much of Jesus without doing so in a flamboyant, gaudy way. You don't even see his face, but you know this is Jesus. When he is in the scene, you know that he is the center of the story. The movie actually begins with the nativity. 
And you wondered to yourself, after that initial scene of the birth of Jesus and the shepherds and the magi and all of this, you wonder to yourself, what is going on? Because it suddenly shifts. And you think that the movie is about Ben-Hur, but it's not really about Ben-Hur first and foremost. It's about Jesus. And by the end of the film, it comes full circle and it makes a lot of sense. It was Jesus who was giving Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur, the cup of water that kept him alive so that he could even get to the Roman galley. And by God's grace, Judah finds favor with the general. And by God's grace, his chains are not fastened to his legs and his arms during the battle. And he's able to not only save himself, but others, including the general. And by God's grace, he's adopted, again symbolically. By God's grace, he makes it back to Judea from Rome. By God's grace, he ends up winning the race against Masala. And by God's grace, he ends up being delivered from his bitterness and his hatred. It's a beautiful story. Absolutely beautiful. They just do not make movies like this anymore. You think about social justice in our day and age. And I'm thinking of Vody Bauckham's excellent book that I recently did a podcast episode about. I just recently read it here last week, in which he points out rightly that social justice has no conception of grace and mercy and forgiveness. There is no mercy and forgiveness when you're incessantly calling for reparations. That is not forgiveness when you're setting American cities on fire, when you're burning the flag of your nation, when you're refusing to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance or for the national anthem, when every breath you breathe out is hatred and animus for people who don't look like you, for people who have things you don't, when you blame everybody else for your problems and your hardships and you want them dead or else underfoot. You want to grind their face in the dirt for all to see. There's no grace and forgiveness in that. And yet, the gospel makes that central, makes God's grace central. Yes, there's a holy God, and we haven't sinned first and foremost against one another. Against you only have I sinned, David says in the Psalms. When we sin against one another, we're still not first and foremost sinning against one another. We're first and foremost sinning against God in whose image we are made. And yet, he gives more grace. The story of Jesus quietly, confidently, lovingly, mercifully giving enough water to keep a falsely accused man alive through the desert is not a story of oppressors and oppressed. It's a story of sinners and a loving God who gives his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 41 is the name by which Judah Ben-Hur is known on the galley until he saves the general and he's adopted as a son. And all of a sudden, he's the adopted son of Quintus Arius. All of a sudden, he bears the seal of Quintus Arius. 
but that's not enough. It's never enough. The truth of social justice and critical theory is that even when they return to Judea in wealth and prestige and power, they're not satisfied. Even when they win the chariot race and they see their one-time would-be oppressor who falsely accused them, sent them into what should have been a certain death sentence, when they see that would-be oppressor trampled under the hooves of the chariot horses, it's still not enough. Even when their foe, the one they wanted so long to see maimed, battered, broken, pulverized, even when they see him dying, breathing his last breath, the anger and the bitterness, the resentment, the hatred is still with them. And it will always be with them, but for the grace of God. And but for the grace of God, there go I also and you. Because somebody has wronged me and somebody has wronged you. And things didn't work out the way that they were supposed to. And we tried to do the right thing once upon a time and we got burned for it. And I'm not going to get burned again. So now we're cynical and now we're jaded and now we're resentful. And now we're Judah Ben-Hur, consumed. But he gives more grace. All things are possible with God. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And the beautiful, tragic, restorative, redemptive story in Ben-Hur is that leprosy, this incurable disease, is not incurable. I can fix that, Jesus says as he goes to the cross. It's the Father's good pleasure that that gets fixed because that was not the original design. The miraculous healing that Miriam and Tirza experience is nothing even really in comparison to the restoration of Judah Ben-Hur's soul. And it's only because his soul is restored with his encounter with Jesus, with his faith in Jesus. He's like the thief on the cross. And there were two thieves, if you'll remember, one on either side of Jesus, one who scoffed and mocked, and the other who realized all of a sudden in his last hours that this is the Messiah. And we deserve this punishment. He doesn't. Remember me when you are in your kingdom. That is Judah. And it is only through Jesus healing his bitterness, his anger, his hatred, it is only by that that he's able to have a healthy relationship with Esther, this beautiful woman that pleads with him to let go of those things, to listen to the words of this Jesus, to come see and meet Jesus with her. It's only Jesus who's able to restore Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur, so that he can have a life with his mother and his sister and the daughter of Simonides. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. This is episode 41 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. And if you've never seen Ben-Hur, 
go watch it. If you've seen it, but it's been a while, go watch it again. It's a great movie. It's a great story. With all that said, I thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.